That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Hello, everyone. It's Richard Cox here with Adam Fitzgerald. And it seemed like a good time to talk to Adam because I have questions. I have questions about Afghanistan, trying to understand the situation and what's just gone on for the past 20 years and whether any of the things we thought a whopping 20 years ago now about why the war happened were actually the reasons it happened. Did we get all that wrong? What does it mean for the future of the US empire? Now the United States is is leaving, having its, uh, its second helicopter on the roof of the embassy moment. I thought I'd have a chat with Adam and put some of these questions to him. So Adam... Good evening. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Richard. Seems like old times. Yeah, quite, quite. So what was it all about, Adam? Why has the United States just spent 20 years in Afghanistan? Why was there a decision to invade and occupy the country in the year 2001? And were any of the things that people of my kind of slightly more conspiratorial inclination about oil and gas pipelines and heroin trafficking as set forward for, for reasons for the war, were any of them true? The kind of things we were reading in Michael Rupert's work 20 years ago. Wow. Uh, well, I think it's a combination of all these things, actually. Um, of course, the, the, the general introduction that was given to us by the State Department was we invaded Afghanistan in 2001 on the basis that al-Qaeda was hiding with the Taliban in the training camps that was uh, located within the uh, Naganhar and Kandahar provinces. But there was much more at the table than what we were being told initially. For uh, a year prior, we were told that there was a, a deal between Unical, uh, which is a, uh, a California uh, company um, that was a major petroleum explorer and uh, marketer, which is uh, headed by uh, Thomas Bard and Lyman Stewart. And it was a big deal with the Taliban. They wanted to run a pipeline through Afghanistan, but they needed the cooperation of the Taliban who are uh, taking control over the country. And in the middle of that, they were fighting uh, a civil war between themselves and the Northern Alliance headed by Ahmed Shah Massoud and General Datsum. The problem was, was that, and this is uh, the blame on the Unical, was that Unical made them a short end deal in that the Taliban actually said that the reason why they, they didn't like the deal was that they thought they were getting the short end of the stick. And also at the same time, in August of 1998, there was cruise missile strikes on Afghanistan um, in response to the East Africa embassy bombings. Clinton shot a couple of missile strikes at the alleged training camps in Afghanistan. Because of that, the Taliban basically revoked any type of deal, including uh, what they were in talks with the Saudi government led by Prince Turkey bin Faisal, head of the General Intelligence Directorate, uh, suggesting that the Taliban hand over Osama bin Laden. When these missile strikes impacted Afghanistan, the Taliban basically pulled out of any deal, including the one with Unical and including the deal with the Saudis handing over bin Laden. And they started compromising the, uh, the pipelines. And because of this, Unical pulled out the deal. That was one reason. And there's another reason. This is a conspiracy theory. So take this with a grain of salt, speculation, was that the United States were, was split, including the Central Intelligence Agency, on who to back in the war. Uh, would it be uh, Mullah Omar, Mullah Muhammad Omar of the Taliban or 
Ahmed Shah Massoud of the Northern Alliance. So there was quite a rift within the intelligence services. And I think it was in the summer of 2001, Massoud actually went to Brussels and tried to warn the world about backing the Northern Alliance in their fight against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And Massoud gave a very direct warning. The warning was that if you do not back us, Al-Qaeda and Taliban will attack the United States. In fact, Massoud actually gave an intelligence report. He received intelligence in the early 2001 period that he heard there was going to be an attack inside the United States. Okay, let me just rewind a little bit there, and we'll focus on the oil issue for a minute first, the oil and gas pipeline issue, okay? So throughout the 1980s, I'm not aware that this was like a strategic consideration because most of the Stan regions of Central Asia were inside the USSR at that point. I'm not sure how much awareness there was of the um, natural oil and gas reserves in the Caspian and surrounding areas uh, then, but the whole Operation Cyclone thing seems to be really focused on basically what it said in the tin, drawing the USSR into Afghanistan to give them their Vietnam to drain the Soviet empire. And um, however much it was or wasn't a contributing factor, the Soviet Union did break up. And then you see the whole, all these um, Stan republics emerging uh, in Central Asia. And then there's a shift, right, to having this like real interest in the region after like a period of abandonment of a couple of years, there's a shift having a real interest in the region to see who's going to come out on top, who's, whose corporations, is it going to be Russia or the United States controlling or corporations in there developing the, the oil and gas uh, reserves. And we covered that a bit, particularly with uh, Azerbaijan and the use of uh, Islamic radicals to tilt the board in favor of dictators who would be compliant with um, with US interests. And then out of Afghanistan, as you were saying, it, it, that didn't work out. I think, am I right in saying the Taliban were in talks with a South American company because they didn't like dealing with Unicol. And the other thing I recall hearing about that was um, women's groups in the United States putting pressure on the Clinton administration to not do business with the Taliban. Believe it or not, now that you, you basically shook my head a little bit there, uh, cobwebs, I've heard about that story regarding the South American company. I, I, I can't speak further on this because I, I'm, you know, I forgot all about that part. And I was not made aware about the women's uh, rights movement against the Taliban, which is interesting enough because now that the Taliban have taken control, control, uh, control of the country, on Twitter, basically, from the last, I think, week and a half, maybe two weeks, I'm starting to see feminists actually you know, talk about how the United States needs to return and, and uh, engage in war against the, the Taliban because they feared that the women, and I think, uh, I forgot the name of the reporter on CNN, she basically is reporting out of, out of Afghanistan wearing the full burqa, and she's actually being harassed by the Taliban, and you see these a uh, number of different groups, especially, shockingly enough, more of a, a liberal mindset, the left mindset. I wouldn't say the classic liberalism mindset, but this leftist, which is pro-war, which doesn't distinguish from those of the far right, the conservative movement, where they're promoting the idea that the United States needs to return and continue the yeah. war. But yeah, I, I forgot all about the, uh, the South women's American. rights movement. South America, yeah, I forgot all about it, Richard. Yeah, so, I mean, that would be, you know, usually a good enough reason for a war, right? <laughs> like, right. In, or, a, or a regime change operation in, you know, US imperial history. So can you speak to, are you aware of like the, um, any plans in the Bush administration prior to 9-11, um, expressions of interest in 
a military option in Afghanistan. And maybe that can segue into what you were saying about the United States security apparatus being divided over the weather to support uh, the Taliban or Ahmed Shah Massoud, the, the Lion of Pangaea. And I think maybe um, whenever you want to, the interesting segue there is um, the event that happened just before 9-11 was the assassination of ah, Ahmed yes. Shah Massoud, which uh, I've just read, I think we've both just read an article by Peter, Peter R. Scott, making it clear that that made the invasion possible. Like, if he's there, there would have been too much unified resistance across the country to a US invasion. So it's just another occasion where the um, the interests of the Taliban and the interests of the US security state coincide, you know, and yeah. Al-Qaeda assassinations, if they, you know, are helpful to the US imperial program. Yeah, now, listen, I, I, I want to take this with a grain of salt because in the months prior to 9-11, I came across information regarding the late John Judge, who's a, a JFK 9-11 researcher and uh, one of the co-founders of 9-11 Citizens Watch. And I tried for a long time to try and get, uh, obtain information about the insinuation that the United States were going to invade Afghanistan months prior to the 9-11 event. And I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll take this with a grain of salt. Now, according to John Judge, he basically said that Secretary of State Colin Powell visited um, Uzbekistan and Waristan and warned the governments there to get all their advisors out of Afghanistan because the United States was going to invade Afghanistan. And that would lead to the conspiracy theory that the invasion of Afghanistan wasn't based on the 9-11 attacks. I tried to find corroborating evidence, corroborating stories for this, and I came across some vague information about, yes, Colin Powell did visit Southeast Asia and the Balkans in 2001, but I don't know what he was talking about in regards to Uzbekistan and Waziristan. So, like I said, take that with a grain of salt. It would lead to the, the effect that did we invade Afghanistan on the pretext of the September 11th attacks? Well, it leads right back to your question about, um, well, there was an incident uh, two days prior on September 9th, 2001. Um, there was an interview being set up with uh, the Northern Alliance leader, Ahmed Shah Massoud. And it was two people, but they were posing as French journalists, but they were from Tunisia, posing as cameramen when they weren't. And when they got near Ahmed Shah Massoud, there was a bomb inside the camera and the camera exploded. And it mortally wounded Massoud and he was taken to a hospital, but on the way there, he, he expired. He died of his wounds. The two men, one of them was beaten to death. The other one was killed in the explosion. What happened was, was that in the, in the weeks prior to that assassination, there was somebody by the name of Julie Sims who worked out of the CIA and who basically tried to get Massoud to um, surrender to the Taliban because the CIA wouldn't back the Northern Alliance in their fight against the Taliban, which was now being supported by the Hizbut Islami party. And that was headed by Gulbuddin Hekmatar, who was considered an enemy to Massoud. But basically, in the years prior, Hekmatar was on the sidelines. But now he was joining the Taliban because the Taliban was gaining more and more control of, this, of the country, mainly to the south. And so Massoud basically was controlling the north with, with the um, Uzbeks and holding their own. But the CIA basically backed out and fully didn't support Massoud. And two days later, he was killed. Two days later, September 11th happens. And uh, the Taliban have taken control of the country. And it's found out that 
the the two men who went to kill Masood were Al Qaeda fighters, and there is some speculation to this as to why Al Qaeda got involved. When Al Qaeda did this, it basically solidified Bin Laden as being in the country so that the Taliban could protect him, because the Taliban were unaware that Bin Laden had this operation involving the planes operation, which was the September 11th attacks. When they found out days later, because they still didn't know he was behind it. In fact, the first people that were interviewed on the American media were the Taliban. Taliban were actually interviewed, and they were on C-SPAN early in the day, and the towers didn't even fall yet. And they were basically saying that if bin Laden was indeed behind the attacks, they wanted George Bush to present evidence, and they would hand him over to the Saudis or to the Americans. And at that point, Bush said, we don't deal or negotiate with terrorists. Days later, the Taliban still defended him. They still didn't know. But by the time that they found out, it was too late because bin Laden really did them a favor by killing off Massoud. The Taliban took control of the country. But so what? Because the United States basically invaded Afghanistan and basically decimated the Taliban and, yeah. and Al-Qaeda. Just worth uh, noting, we perhaps shouldn't like do another segue into it, but we did cover this in the series, didn't we, that there was a very similar assassination attempt against George W. Bush or oh, oh yeah. that's what we think it was on September 11th itself with like two cameramen turning up um, suggesting they had an interview and they didn't and being turned away by the Secret Service but that was like weird <laughs> it was strange um, yeah we, we did an episode on that a while we did, back yeah. yeah it was called the, assassina- the assassination of George Bush or something like that Yeah. In, in, in the fact that I'll just give a short rundown it was a bunch of Arabs in a white band who went to the uh, the hotel that uh, Bush was staying in for his visit to the Booker T. Elementary School. And they said that they were there to interview George Bush. And the Secret Service looked at the list. They didn't find these people's names. And they basically drove away. And some person uh, who was in the streets after the uh, planes hit the World Trade Center said they saw this van, the same van, where they were yelling out the window, down with Bush. The speculation is that these people were probably posing as journalists and that they were going to assassinate George Bush in a similar fashion. Um, the FBI basically went to the person who wrote the story, Shay Sullivan, who I actually spoke to through email, and he's basically said the FBI told him not to run that story mm-hmm. about the incident. So it basically shows you why wouldn't the FBI want that story to run? Maybe it's because that there was maybe an assassination team uh, that was going to kill George Bush. Why? And, uh, because the question is, why wouldn't why would the FBI threaten the editor and the writer to not publish the story? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So the other aspect to the whole invasion of Afghanistan then is the narcotics. Okay, that the Taliban burnt their opium fields in the year two thousand, and this is an area that, much like with energy. Mike Rupert was big into with his background as an LAPD narcotics investigator where the the contra cocaine was being dumped off in the 1980s. And Mike was uh, fully informed about all that and had had run-ins with CIA drugs operations. And um, he claims to have predicted the when he when he saw the on the news that the opium crop was being burnt, that this would cause a war, that the United States would have to invade the country and dispose of the Taliban because of the importance of that drugs money in the financial markets in New York. And, you know, it's not a stupid point, right? There's like a trillion dollars of drugs money going around the world each year. It's like the GDP of a fairly big country. 
and it's obviously coming into the legitimate economy somewhere and that obviously has an impact so mike's case is this is like so pivotal to the financial system they would have to replace the taliban and the consequence of the u.s invasion has been bumper crops of opium for the past 20 years right so mm-hmm. uh, with eradication plans um, either not going very well or these kind of crazy scenes of u.s soldiers protecting opium fields actively protecting opium fields if u.s citizens were to buy on the other end of that chain uh, they would be doing long jail sentences for so what do you think of this whole thing of the um, narcotics angle to the afghan war well i think it's a, a relevant angle actually because back in uh july of 2000 it was mullah omar the leader of the taliban who collaborated with the united nations to eradicate heroin production in afghanistan uh, because uh, the taliban declared heroin un-Islamic. And so the Taliban have forced uh, a ban on poppy farming. Uh, so they you know, started threatening farmers and they forced eradications, uh, public punishment for transgressors, including the severing of hands and feet. And so the result was a resounding success. In fact, I've always said that the Taliban were actually the only uh, entity in the world that had success in the war on drugs. The result was a 99% reduction in the area of opium farming, which is resounding success. And the ban uh, was effective only briefly due to the, uh, the forced deposition of the Taliban by the United States government through the military in 2002. Uh, but through the period of 19, uh, I want to say like around 96 to 2001, so that five-year period, the Taliban basically curtailed all opium production into Helmand province, which is the, the, uh, the largest opium field on the earth, only behind the Golden Triangle in Indochina. Some people basically suggested that certain parties benefited during the price of the ban, but overall, drug profits are what supplies black operations. For example, the CIA can't go before a Senate Select Committee in the United States and basically say, can, can, we, uh, can we get $500 million for an operation of deposing, say, a president in an Arab country through a coup d'etat, you know, that would suggest that the United States is basically interfering with um, governments in other countries through forced uh, military coups. That basically would uh, suggest that we're doing uh, illegal operations with the American intelligence services. So they can't basically do that. So what they do is they go to the drug trade, because drugs is what the profits from drug trade basically supplies an entity like the CIA or the Pakistan ISI or the Israeli Mossad in conducting black operations without going through the legal channels of, of their uh, governments and their committees. And so Rupert actually had a really good point in regards to going down this route, but in regards to the, uh, it was a, basically a, a fight for the oil. Well, that played a very small part. I mean, it was multi faceted options in why we went to the war with Afghanistan and Iraq. And it wasn't, you know, the war on terror. That was just basically the, the, the false notion that we were. There was many other uh, ideas as to why. And we could talk about them in a bit about, you know, it's, that's regarding foreign policy, um, regarding the, the, the control of the Helmand province and the drug trade, the oil production of Iraq, not so Afghanistan. Um, and, and also the foreign lobby institutes of Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, uh, Israeli through APAC, um, wanting to expand the United States um, to use their military to basically defeat 
the uh, preconceived enemies of both countries. So there's a, there's a lot of influences as to why we invaded Afghanistan and other Arab countries. Okay, I'll ask you one more thing about the sort of early aspects of the invasion, and then anything more you want to say for sure, um, and then we'll cut to how how this whole thing worked out in the end. So the one more thing is, I know you've just read Gary Bernstein's book, Jawbreaker. Um, and well, I'll let you say what Jawbreaker was, but essentially we're talking about the escape of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda members from Afghanistan into Pakistan, where they suddenly became untouchable. The same willingness to invade Afghanistan to get in was not carried over uh, across the Pakistani border. And bin Laden survives then for another 10 years. And there's a, there's a perception that there's a loss of interest with Bush and Rumsfeld making statements like, well, we don't know where he is and it's really not the point. Yeah. And it was very, really weird sounding. And then other figures like Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, like the second in command and presumably now in command of Al-Qaeda. Well, I mean, whoever hears about him again, you know, it's like there's no right. interest. I mean, you know, if the CIA have dedicated teams to hunting this guy down, you certainly don't hear anything about that in the media, right? There's no sort of uh, how the hunt for Al-Qaeda is going today, how the hunt for the remaining men or, or even figures we talked about in the series, like Ahmed al-Hadar at the uh, communications hub in Yemen. Like, he ran off into a crowd and no one ever mentioned him again, you know? Right. So it's all very weird, this, this lack of interest. And of course, if we're talking or looking through the lens of imperial ambition, well, of course, you don't want to catch the boogeyman, right? Because right. You know, what you want to do is get away into a country, preferably one of nuclear weapons, that you can then say, well, we can't really invade there, and then link him to Saddam Hussein and whoever else you want to around the world, say he's being funded by Iran or, or whatever. So uh, Gary Bernstein was involved in the effort central, central to the CIA's effort to capture bin Laden. What do you make of why he was able to get away? Do you think there was, um, it was a kind of bureaucratic fumbling or do you think there was like intentionality in maybe not guaranteeing it, but just sort of leaving doors open in the recognition he would be a useful enemy? Well, I, I mean, just going by my own opinions and studies in regards to the operation called Jawbreaker, it was basically an interagency operation involving the CIA, the Special Forces, CENTCOM, and of course, the multiple Afghan forces to capture and kill Al-Qaeda, not so much the Taliban, but Al-Qaeda, which was the, the real prize here was Osama bin Laden. It was headed initially under Gary Schroen, a legendary CIA paramilitary officer. And Gary Bernstein basically took over his job in Afghanistan. Bernstein actually also led the response team to the U.S. Embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Bernstein actually coordinated with General Tommy Franks, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and headed, headed under the CENTCOM forces. And so the reason why bin Laden basically survived this operation, which was, I think, slaughtered somewhere in approximately 15,000 Taliban fighters and approximately five to 7,000 Al-Qaeda fighters. There was only maybe 250, 500 fighters of Al-Qaeda left at that point. It was a successful operation. Well, that was airstrikes, right? They yeah, basically, most of them, yeah, right. Uh, I want to say it was a combination of B-52, B-1s, and there was this plane called the Blue, uh, I want to say Blue 82 or Blue 32, where they would uh, uh, bomb these areas with daisy cutters. Blue 32s are daisy cutter bombs where they flatten the ground. And where bin Laden was hiding out was called the White Mountains in the Malava Valley. 
And it was filled with, you know, these white tops, mountain snow and large trees and these blue 32 bombs would basically just decimate the ground, flatten the trees so that you could see the caves when where they were hiding out in. And the ground is scorched earth. It was burned everywhere. And was, they just destroyed the Taliban al-Qaeda with these bombs unrelenting in the daytime, nighttime. And then on top of that, you had these special forces fighters and the CIA. And I think there was uh, 300 CIA officers involved. It was the largest um, CIA operation in the world um, involving personnel. And also you have these Afghan fighters that were headed by General Dotson, the future Afghanistan president, Hamid Karzai. So there was a number of Afghan contingent fighters from the Northern and Eastern Alliance on top of these, uh, I think it was 2,000 special forces uh, and 300 CIA case officers, U.S. Army Rangers, all like in a pincher movement from the East and the South, but they had a backdoor channel. And so Gary Bernstein actually was trying to call his handler, which was Hank Crumpton, who was in charge, who was the CTC, uh, CIA's counterterrorism center's uh, leader. And he was in charge of the uh, the whole overseeing the operation. And Hank Crumpton had to answer to General Tommy Franks of SOCOM to get reinforcements. Gary Bernstein wanted only like 500, or I think it was somewhere between 300 to 500 U.S. Army Rangers to protect the back channel into Pakistan. Because where bin Laden was hiding was in a in this very mountainous region in a couple of homes and caves, and they had a back door into Pakistan. What Bernstein wanted to do was get the U.S. Army Rangers in the, in the, in the back, have the Afghans into the east, and the U.S. and the CIA, the special forces, to act as like a pincer movement. And then you have the Pakistanis to block. And basically, they didn't want to capture bin Laden even then. And this is something new to me. They wanted to kill him even then. So there was no capture of bin Laden, which is what I've always believed was that the, the reason why they let bin Laden uh, to escape the back channel, which he did with 250, it was like 250 or 300 al-Qaeda fighters left, was that so that he can act as still like, as you say, the boogeyman for the United States and that the threat is always out there. Because if bin Laden is killed, if we go to scenario that they kill bin Laden and kill the rest of al-Qaeda, there is no terrorism threat. And there is no reason to stay in Afghanistan. And there is no reason to invade, uh, say, Libya or Syria, for that matter. The war on terrorism is basically over. So for the conspiracy theorists who do have a, um, a right to question this as to why bin Laden escaped, but according to Tommy Franks, he basically says that we, they didn't need the personnel because he trusted the Afghan forces to fight alongside the U.S. personnel already on the ground. But what the U.S. personnel, especially Garen Bernstein, was warning Tommy Franks and the State Department about was that the Afghan forces couldn't be trusted because the Afghan forces basically would flip-flop between Arabs and the Afghans. So in other words, whoever gave them the most money, they would basically fight or allow escape uh, for. And it was suggested that the Arabs basically gave the Afghans money and they escaped into Pakistan. And um, he lived for another 10 years up until 2011, where he was assassinated by U.S. Navy SEALs. And I think it was the Gold Squadron 
that basically assassinated him. There's some mistake about the Navy SEALs that were killed in the Chinook shoot down by the Taliban. That was basically Red Squadron. It was, they go by gold, uh, color squadrons. So it was a different squadron. So, yeah, he was killed in 2011, and, um, which makes no sense because we captured, you know, Ramzi Youssef, who was basically the suspect in 1993 bombing. We captured Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Al- Abu Zubaydah, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who all are high al-Qaeda operatives and lieutenants, uh, allegedly. And they were involved, allegedly, with the September 11th attacks. We all captured, and all of them were captured in Pakistan, most notably. Why didn't we want to capture bin Laden? Why the kill option? Well, I, you know, we could talk about that too. But that's what I basically believe. I believe that they wanted uh, him to escape. And I'm talking about the State Department. And they relayed that information to Tommy Franks, saying, don't give Bernstein any type of reinforcements. Right, right. Okay, so 20 years have gone by. And please say whatever you want to say about the continuation of that war, the change of games of it over the 20 year period. But I think if you told like anyone, you know, maybe has having a baby around September, October 2001, that that child might grow up and fight in the Afghan war, it will still be ongoing. I think people wouldn't believe that. You know, there's meant to be this limited military incursion. And you have to almost time travel back in your own mind to just see how like incredible it is of how long this went on. But at the end of it, the United States is, uh, is leaving. Uh, there are no pipelines and the opium crop is being handed back to the Taliban essentially. So what do we make of this? How does this make us think about what the strategic aims were? Have they been absolute failures? H- how do we conceive of what's gone on there and how it's concluded? Uh, incidentally enough, about uh, soldiers who weren't even born to see 9-11 itself, um, I did a number of videos about the latest of what's going on in Afghanistan. And one story particularly stood out for me. Um, there was a bombing at the Kabul International Airport about a week ago by a group called the Islamic State Khorasan, which was uh, um, an extension, just a small branch of Islamic State. They're affiliated with the Islamic State. Uh, in Syria, in Iraq, but they've been around since 2015. So this group uh, basically went to the Kabul International Airport with a, a, a car full of allegedly uh, martyrdom suicide bombers. And the United States drone striked the car. And basically, there was a number of family members that were killed. And before that, there was another bombing, this time Islamic State a suicide bomber that ran into the airport and he killed himself and killed. 13 um, U.S. service members, and it was like a couple of hundred people that were killed in this bomb itself. However, it was a number of those servicemen who were born in 2002, all, not old enough to know about 9-11 and why we were in Afghanistan in the first place. What do I think about the war now after the U.S. pullout? Well, it was a failure, and I'll tell you why. Three years ago, the Washington Post basically came out with a a story, and it was called the Afghanistan Papers. And it was a huge, huge story and monumental. And there was a couple of of advisors from the White House and from the Pentagon that were warning, even in the uh, mid-2000s, about the United States does not have a long-term plan 
or strategy for Afghanistan, and that the continued war is a failure at this point because the Taliban were basically decimated. They were holding on for dear life. They're being uh, supported by the Pakistan ISI in backdoor deals. The CIA basically were being blackballed by the ISI at the same time while being in control of the Helmand province, controlling the opium trade. All this was going on, and you had service members that were basically trying to help out the Afghan people who at the same time were not getting any money from the NGOs or from the the State Department in trying to rebuild the country. But it was basically up to the Afghan people to use whatever money that they had at their disposal to build the country. Well, the the Americans pull out, and all of this is now going to disappear. The women's rights movements, the secular body of Afghanistan are now going to be basically under the control of this very religious orthodox group of people that only want Afghanistan to be controlled under the context of the Sharia and the Sunnah. They are not an international terrorist organization, although they are deemed a terrorist organization by the United States and the United Nations. Um, my overall assessment about the war is it was an abstract failure. The only, it wasn't a failure for military groups, uh, military uh, industrial complexes like Raytheon, Boeing, LG3 Technologies, Halliburton. They made billions of dollars in that they continued this useless war, which could have ended anytime soon with the elimination of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda back in 2001. If they just gave Gary Bernstein 500 U.S. uh, Army Rangers to block off the back passengers to Pakistan, they could have done this in 2002 and three by, you know, the continued destruction of the Taliban. But they allowed the Taliban to continue to exist at some level so that it continued this war on terror and pour billions and billions. And I think it was up to three trillion dollars into a useless war in Afghanistan. And it basically made bin Laden a a pariah of sorts and also a sage because what bin Laden always wanted was to drag the United States into a longstanding war in Afghanistan so that he could drain the United States economically. And at the current moment, Richard, would you say that bin Laden's wish actually came true? Well, yes, absolutely. And this is why, you know, Scott Hort, I think it's his original thought, I think he's quoting yes. someone, but says that, you know, he's the greatest military commander in history. <laughs> yes. You know, with a, a group of just a few guys, he managed to plant a flag in eastern Afghanistan, have the whole U.S. Army come in there, get stuck there. And he didn't have to be particularly creative to think about this. It's just a rerun of what the United States attempted to do to the Soviets right. in, in the 80s. And a lot of the same people, you know, who were... A lot of the neoconservatives actively behind that policy um, returned in the 2000s. And that they didn't seem to see this is incredible. You know, that you could think that the Soviets being drawn into a protracted war in Afghanistan will bankrupt the Soviet empire. But the same people actually want the US to be drawn into a protracted war. You know, I mean, try making sense of that one. <laughs> well, so, I mean, yeah, George, George Santanyana once said, those who are doomed to forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And yes, Horton basically is now becoming an overnight uh, sensation on media because they're interviewing him as of late. And because he basically called it 
in his book, A Fool's Errand in Time to End the Wars in Afghanistan. Yeah. He wrote two books about this and he was calling this years prior. Um, yeah, and said exactly what would happen. Like, right, you're going to have exactly. the same scenes you had in Hanoi of the helicopter. And then Biden said, no, that, that won't happen. He said, you're not yet. Yeah, give it three weeks. And about two weeks later, it, you know, you right, see, exactly. You know, I mean, and really predicting the speed of the collapse, just saying very obvious things like, well, you know, it's kind of crazy to say they're going to hold out for three months. Why are these people going to fight a war? They're inevitable. Would you fight for three months to then, you know, have your head cut off at the end of it? They're going to surrender as soon as possible and just let the Taliban take over. You know, right. it's, kind of, it's completely predictable. You know? Right. And I, I think, too, at the same time, also, this is something that um, I gave a little bit of validity to in that the Taliban basically were fighting from 2015 onward. Taliban were fighting at two fronts. They were fighting the U.S. coalition, and they were fighting this group called Islamic State Khorasan. Um, and you ask yourself, well, why is the Taliban actually fighting against a terrorist organization that they both are terrorists? Well, the Islamic State in Khorasan basically kills Shia Muslims, and they don't consider the Taliban actually pious Muslims or Muslims in general. They consider them munafiq, and that's Arabic for fake Muslim. The Islamic State in Khorasan want... Uh, a caliphate. You still think that there's a caliphate. At the same time, we talked about this before, Richard, where the Islamic State back in 2010 and 11 were being funded and supported by the United States government through the CIA with an operation called Timber Sycamore. And the uh, the operation uh, at that time was headed, was constructed by General David Petraeus, who was the former director of the CIA, and also under President Barack Obama, who was support, which the operation was supported by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and King Abdullah of Jordan. Um, and so the operation was funded primarily by Saudi funds and Saudi money. And the, it was to train and fund Islamic State and other Salafi terrorist groups, and these are terrorist groups, in their fight uh, usurping the Bashar al-Assad government in Syria. Those fighters from Syria who are being decimated by Iran and Russia, then go to other countries such as Afghanistan, Syria, I mean, Libya, even Pakistan. And these little groups started popping up. And one of them is the Islamic State and Khorasan in Afghanistan. So who knows if these Islamic State groups, uh, Islamic State Khorasan are basically some of the same people who are being supported and funded by the United States uh, and Saudi Arabia. So I, I would well, you have an effective U.S. funding of the Taliban, uh, don't you? Because the United States gives aid to Pakistan, who give aid to the Taliban, because that's they right. see them as being their allies in the region against Indian influence in Afghanistan. So that's been like the elephant in the room, really, for us yeah, the entire right, right, exactly. war. Is that you're actually allied with your allies of your enemy, yeah. Um, sure. Not to mention the recent gift of military aid directly to the Taliban, when they now have yeah. all the weapons in the country. Now, Scott Horton said about this, well... Okay, really what they should have done is taken all the weaponry off the Afghan National Security Services, right? right? But exactly. can you imagine the aesthetics of that? Of like, look, we've been training for 20 years, but we think you're so bad. The best thing we can do is just leave you defenseless because then, you know, when the Taliban take over, at least you won't have the weapons as well. So, yeah, it's just, it's bizarre. It's all, I mean, you can see conspiracy theories, whether they're true or not. They do, you know, describe the, the world so well sometimes in the, if you wanted to set up another war for the military industrial complex in Afghanistan, well, you'd need to really get the Taliban some weapons to fight with, you know, That's so you correct. give them the stingers in the eighties right. and now you give them all the, uh, 
you right. know, all this new military equipment. So this, this yeah, actually I, I, actually, I actually made a video about this where I said there was, I, I gave a speculative notion in that if the United States wants to return back to Afghanistan, just leave the weapons behind. And then uh, two days later, uh, the story broke, I think it was through, uh, of all people, Fox of all reports basically said, though they broke the report that the United States military left behind a bunch of AK-47s, um, Stinger, I mean, um, Jeeps and trucks and tanks. And I was like, well, that's, there's a reason why they did that. And it wasn't because that they wanted to run out and flee out the country, like the, the State Department basically was saying, was that this was a coordinated effort to leave behind weapons to the Taliban in the hopes that they use it and use it on um, American interests in the region so that they would give them a, 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 a reason to return back to the country and fight against the war on terror. Okay, so let's talk about that then. So essentially, like, the, we're living in 1975, right? And the Vietnam War has just come to an end. Mm. And then America goes into this um, after the Republican governments of Nixon and Ford and then Johnson's really starting the war before that, we have Jimmy Carter come along, who's ostensibly a more peace-loving president. And uh, that coincides with the time that you have, like, the church report into, um, Senator Frank Church's report into the malfeasance in the CIA. So there's this kind of awakening in the United States to what the, the deep state are up to and um, how disastrous this military intervention's been, the cost in human life and all the rest. And there's kind of a movement away from that. And you can see Jimmy Carter as being... Uh, in some ways, a genuine movement away, or perhaps more accurately, a kind of cover and a kind of like a lot of things going to ground. And that's where you have like the Safari Club come about then, right? With right. Um, like international efforts between intelligence agencies set up when the CIA can't do quite as much for a period. But that that hiding of the empire only lasts four years before it's like foot to the, on the throttle all the way again with um, Reagan and the, the wars in Sen Central America kicking off and the whole Afghan escalation. So how do we how do we see this? I don't think there was many calls in the 70s to go back into Vietnam uh, in the, the time after that. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I, I don't know. It's just not something I've heard. But it, it seemed like when that was over, it was over. Where do you think this takes the whole imperial construct now? Like, Because it, it could go the way of, like, there's a, a rejection of empire now, a rejection of these foreign policy interventions, a recognition that they've all been disastrous and America never really wins um, according to their objectives anyway, and, and a, a rising influence of, of China, maybe Russia in, in Afghanistan with regards to development of energy pipelines and so on. Or do you think um, the more dark image is that this actually catapults empire and said, oh, it's, you know, it's all Biden's fault for pulling out. And what we need is a, a strong, hard, right-wing Republican president next time round who will kind of restore face right because there's kind of a loss of face in this for anyone who believes in the american imperial project you know a year ago donald trump basically made a deal with the taliban to sign a deal to end the war in afghanistan and by by about that same time i started seeing neoconservative talking heads such as steve bannon uh and william crystal talk about more so about the threat of China being a, uh, a supporter. And uh, we started hearing about the Uyghur genocide happening there. And now you don't hear about that anymore. But you could see that, they, you know, with the, with the war in Afghanistan coming to an end or coming to a close, there was a new vision onto who would the uh, imperialists 
set their sights on for another war. But that speculatory interest into China hasn't ended. Um, at about that same time, we started hearing about grumblings about North Korea, also Iran, which has basically ramped up again. And so I think basically what's going to happen is that while we take off the focus of Afghanistan, there will be another country that we will be invading within the next year, uh, I would say uh, somewhere within the 12 to 18 month period. Biden himself is actually losing the support of even his most centrist leftists in the in the group. Uh, they seem as feeble and weak. And this basically uh, was proof, according to those people who are basically now siding uh, most horrifying of all the neoconservatives who are basically using the left and right in regards to using each uh, political uh, party for their nefarious interests. There is no left and right when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, same thing for the Pentagon, same thing for foreign lobby interests. They all act as one party. But when it comes to such as the American interests, such as uh, human rights, uh, liberal issues, such as raising minimum wage or social security, then there is a divide. There's a left and right and an obvious one at that. But when it comes to the global interest, when it comes to real money, billions and even trillions of dollars come, that comes from the foreign lobby institutes, fossil fuel industries, military industrial complexes, private industries, and of course, major donors from Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, um, and other Europe countries that have a vested interest in controlling the global uh, issue regarding whether it comes from war or the intelligence services, then there is just one issue and it's one goal. While the American people are left to fight over themselves of the menial and transparent issues that doesn't involve the interests of the global community. What I'm going to see probably in the next six to 12 months is basically a backlash from Biden's own cabinet in saying that we should have never had left Afghanistan. And interestingly enough, and I think you hinted at this before, the very people who were the architects of the Afghanistan war, the neocons like William Crystal, Paul Wolfowitz, basically are being interviewed by, of all people, CNN, MSNBC, about why the mistake is pulling out Afghanistan. And basically, you know, if you're the American, you know, progressive and saying, why on earth is CNN and MSNBC interviewing these neoconservative war hawks? Well, that's because the legacy media is controlled by the Pentagon. Yeah, they put a different stand on it. Right, like, like Fox goes to war for security reasons. Fox and the Republican right. Party is for security reasons, weapons of mass destruction. The Democrats, CNN, MSNBC are humanitarian responsibility to protect. That's like the branding for war. Right. It appears to a different, uh, different yeah. person out there in the population. And, you know, the, the, I mean, I guess you can say security, you know, because maybe terrorists will come back to Afghanistan and Al Qaeda will get a base or something, you know, but that's kind of a hard line to push, right? Because it's like, caves in the middle of nowhere and they have to actually still get to the United States. So that would be where your security effort would be. And it's not like that's the only place in the world they could coordinate. If that were the case, then we US would need to invade Pakistan for a start. But the responsibility to protect thing, yeah, you can bang that drum pretty hard at the moment because it's like 20 years of work gone to waste. It's uh, you know the squandered sacrifice of the soldiers. And yeah, like Afghanistan is in, you know, it's going to get a lot worse for a lot of people pretty 
pretty quickly. Although not for you know, you know, I mean, it's not like the people who were dying in U.S. airstrikes throughout the war. They're not really considered in the right. left-wing responsibility to protect. You know, they're they're kind of acceptable collateral for this um, world-building project to get little girls into school. And I, how ironic that was a Soviet aim as well. You know, when they invaded the country right. in the eighties. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to see the propaganda for the next war, Adam, because. The, the disasters have come so fast and thick, right? That to talk about a successful U.S. war, yeah, when, when would that be exactly? You know, you'd almost have to go back to World War Two, right? And then that's successful if you discount Stalin getting half of Europe and now getting China. That was a great success. But the suggestion for a war in Iran, how would anyone think that would turn out? <laughs> What's the track yeah. record for that? You know? Right. I, I just interviewed Lawrence Wilkerson and uh, basically I asked him about the Iran because I, I, I used a quote that he used in a, a film. It was a documentary about APAC. And in that film, it was made in 2006. Lawrence Wilkinson said that he, if, if the United States were to entertain a war in Iran, that the generals at the Pentagon would do a walkout because they saw the failures of Iraq. But Iran would be worse, implement worse, because Iran has a formidable army, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, as well as having a decent naval base as well. And plus, the the region of Iran, especially to the south, is very mountainous. So it gave it would give the Iranians a, a, a very big advantage in terms of a ground war. Yeah, it's three um, times the size of Iraq, and they can probably yeah, mine or or close the Straits of Hormuz too, and stop right. like exactly whatever exactly. a third of the world's oil flowing. Uh, it would be a big mistake to invade, especially for Iran. The only countries that are really pushing this are, are of course, our foreign lobby uh, influencers of Israel and Saudi Arabia, the Gulf. And, you know, Israel, of course, considers Iran the biggest enemy of all because they're right to their north and they consider them preconceived enemy for decades. Saudi Arabia sees them in a different light. They see them as a religious enemy. Iran being a Shia-dominated uh, country and, the, of course, Saudis led by the Wahhabi Salafi uh, ideology which is, uh, of course, incidentally, un-Islamic. Many Sunni scholars consider Wahhabi un-Islamic itself in its own right. Um, so there is a, a couple of vested interests. The United yeah. States, I, I think with the Pentagon, don't want it. But the State Department, which is being influenced by the foreign lobbies, are pushing it. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking it, it will take something big now. It take like another 9-11 event to right, restart I the war so. machine, you know? Because the, the, like the... I suppose two substantive wars in the 90s of Iraq and Yugoslavia, both really responsibility to protect wars. That was like the doctrine replacing the Cold War. But yeah, 9-11 really set the empire alight. You right. know, it really took it off. So it now seems after 20 years of like every war being a complete disaster, it, it's, it will take something yes. substantive to like restart it again. So let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, listen, Richard, incidentally enough, I just thought it in my head, the United States basically posted a story a year ago um, saying that they killed Abu Masr al-Masri, the number three man in al-Qaeda, and they killed him in Iran, of all countries, and they killed him with a drone strike. Iran came out the next day and basically refuted the story, saying that the Israelis in the United States are basically fabricating a story that never happened. And the United States basically was asked by the, the press, by Al Jazeera, to provide evidence for the story, and they basically said... We're going by intelligence reports on the ground. And so that tells you right there that there's, they're trying to connect Iran with Al-Qaeda, 
and wherever that story may lead. Basically, Iran is one of the biggest deterrents and enemies of al-Qaeda in itself. Al-Qaeda, of course, led by the uh, Wahhabi uh, Salafi principles, Iran is not. And Iran basically doesn't like, they hated bin Laden, they hated al-Qaeda, and basically are fighting against these uh, al-Qaeda-sponsored groups in Syria, uh, ironically enough. And that's who Israel is currently bombing in Damascus in Syria, uh, stating that they'd rather fight against Hezbollah than against the Islamic State. And they come right out and say it. They're not even hiding the fact. And uh, basically, there was a report by uh, Times of Israel, and which is a liberal paper, basically came out saying that Israel was actually treating al-Nusra fighters. Al-Nusra is basically a terrorist organization by the United Nations and the United States, and they were treating them at Golan Heights hospitals and, you know, caring for these people because they basically said, we'd rather side with the Islamic State and these Wahhabi groups against Iranian proxy armies in Hezbollah to try and, and destroy the Syrian government. Yeah, well, that's not surprising. Well, it's right. kind of no shocking, but not surprising, there. right? Right, it's, not surprising. Well, I mean, we have come before that, like, the Islamic State, um, you think they get at least caught trying to do something in Israel sometime, you know? <laughs> not once, not <laughs> that's once. That's strange, yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. So, um, yeah, make of that what you will. So, I know I think it's going to be hard to sell something like that, like a, a, right, an exactly. Iran-Al-Qaeda connection. is just, like, right. people are surely too cynical. But, of course, like... The other thing is, it's not the same people, right? Like, there's a whole younger generation, you know, who you can see the the CIA did. The, I'm sure you saw the woke CIA advert where you had yes, like I, I, I won't even attempt the the labels in it of people of color who are a po- a transgender popery. with multiple mental health problems, and yes. but they work, yes. they're proud to work for yes. the agency, you know. So, I mean, who's that? What's that about? That's you've got to try and recruit. A new up and coming generation. And I think they're, they're, you know, speaking to a lot of people who aren't even old enough to vote yet, but okay, it might be a recruitment drive, but it's more, I don't know, when I say recruit, I don't mean recruit to actively work for the CIA. I mean, recruit them into the imperial ideology with the, the whole kind of like cult of woke that's come about. I don't know what position they have on foreign policy. It's not, it's very, it's a very domestically focused thing, right? So that's, and I think the kind of new right is a bit more cynical off the wars than certainly like in the George Bush years when people were smashing bottles of champagne uh, to protest against France. <laughs> like, so how do you, how, well, we'll probably stop in a minute, Adam, because we're going into a whole different area, but there is a question now of like the rebranding of the empire for a new generation. I think that was obvious when that uh, commercial advert that you were talking about where they named every single different label. And I was about to say that it was like a potpourri of different agendas there, including sexuality, background, religious preference, or whatnot. Uh, it got, it was slammed. I remember when that came out and Twitter, I think that was the number one t- trending story on Twitter at one point, basically mocking the, the advert itself. But you could see, I mean, you basically hit, hit on the nail on head. You could see who the CIA is trying to reach because these are the same people who are basically speaking out against empire speaking out against the imperial nature of the old, uh, the old face of the neoconservative party. And what they don't realize is that the neoconservatives are basically not just right wing. They'll use the left because the left, like I said before, will basically are more right when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to Pentagon issues, when it comes to war. For example, Obama was basically more authoritarian and probably more hawkish than Bush himself. 
Um, you basically have Bush pundits that come out uh, much later and saying they were jealous, almost shocked at the fact that Obama was given uh, an almost like this unlimited check balance to basically drone strike and enormous rates at seven Arab countries. The blank check that they gave the NSA, this warrantless wiretapping that extended the United States, including the global, global community. Uh, even the most neoconish, most more war hawkish people were basically very shocked at that. And that's basically what is Obama tried to sell you. He tried to sell you progressive ideals. What was the, the mantra? We, uh, change or we could change. Or hope, hope, and, yeah, hope and change. Hope and change. And yes, hope and change for who and for what? It was a very dead label, a dead issue here. There wasn't no hope and there wasn't no change. It was worse. Ask the Middle East. They basically consider Obama worse than Bush, even though Bush basically was responsible for the death of over one million Iraqis. But Obama just considered those policies and even extended it further. So, yes, what do I think about what the CIA and the imperialist nature are trying to do? They're trying to reach you, the progressive, you of the different backgrounds who are basically saying we're different than our, our forefathers of the, uh, the old faces of the neoconservative movement. They're trying to reach you to try and normalize, as Richard said, normalize imperialism, normalize war, and normalize the destabilization of the Middle East and Southeast Asia. I think that's right. Okay, Adam. Well, it feels like probably a good place to end, um, sure. as we, and we'll pick up and talk more about that whole the future of empire thing Absolutely. at another time, but we'll leave this one here for now. So thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you again. I'd like to do this again soon. Uh, absolutely, Richard. Thank you again.